last night, Bob, talked about how just as is true in life, in meditation, if you meditate, you're going to be visited by many different experiences, including difficult experiences, challenges, hindrances, so many different emotions, thoughts, experiences in the body that come and go. Meditation never just progresses in a straight line, just getting better and better and more pleasant and more pleasant without ups and downs and hindrances. It's, it's never like that for anyone. So as Bob was talking about last night, <clears throat> of course, we need to know how to work with those things. And it's, it's a huge part of the practice. And some things you don't need to worry. Uh, all of us are going to get many opportunities to hone our skills. And I hope we can hold it. I'm going to come back to that later, but hold it with that attitude. We don't need to seek out suffering. I happen to be of the school of thought of in on retreat, uh, make yourself as comfortable as possible. There's different respected schools of thought out there. Some really are more on the renunciation end. I happen to be on more of the make sure you sleep, oh, you're getting enough food, are you okay? Make sure you're comfortable. Because I find that for many people, not all, but for many, that supports a part in our hearts and minds that can kind of feel, ah, kind of okay, I'm okay, I'm safe. There's a relaxation that can happen. And then from that place, of course, we all get plenty of opportunities to work with our suffering anyway, right? So um, you're not losing out on the opportunities as long as we don't miss the opportunities that are being presented, like if we fall into the trap of thinking something's going wrong. So I'll come back around to that. Another thing that's true in meditation is if you meditate, you're going to get concentrated. Some of you know this very well. And some of you are waiting to find out, you know, what's this bliss and peace or these meditative states I keep hearing about, when's it going to happen? You know, and that's what they put on the, like the poster, you know, it says, come on retreat, get inner peace. You, you know, if they told you what really was going to happen, <laughs> you, you wouldn't come. <laughs> so, you know. But of course, there's both sides. Uh, I have a general rule of thumb, it's a gross generalization, that at any given time on retreat, Roughly a third of the people are in heaven. Roughly a third are in hell. About a third are somewhere in between. And we're all moving in and out of those categories all the time. And I think there's some truth to that. And so we have to recognize that, you know, that's just part of what happens. It's, you know, they always use the example like the weather. These experiences are coming and going. So we need to have the skill, the tools, and the willingness and ability. Sometimes we might have the willingness and the ability may not be present in the moment. And we need to have the wisdom to recognize that when we need to back off. Or sometimes, what did I say? We might have the willingness, not ability. Sometimes we might have the ability. We not, don't have the willingness. And Okay, we missed an opportunity. It happens. Yeah. So we're going to get all of that. But we also need to, the skill and the ability to work with an equally large 
part of what meditation is about are these meditative states that can be extremely pleasant and beautiful. And when the mind's in those places, they're just conditioned states. They're going to come and go, no doubt about it. But they feel, you know, they, they're healing, they're nourishing, they're nurturing. Something feels good and right about them. And we need to also honor and respect those, not chase after them, not meditate to get that, although many of us will do that, and I've had plenty of that. And, you know, and then we learn and we suffer and you learn. And sometimes we need, I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but sometimes we, we need to suffer to learn about that letting go. But we certainly don't want to run away from the concentration part either. So tonight, what I want to talk about, really now getting into the theme of this retreat, which has been bringing concentration and insight together, I want to get into a little more nuts and bolts here. Um, of, and so I'm going to spend a little bit of the time on, on the talk, really getting into the concentration. The word in Pali is samadhi. So I'll be using both concentration and samadhi, those words interchangeably. What, if, what, what are we talking about? Turns out there's more than one way that samadhi is understood and taught, and more than one way in which it can naturally unfold for people. So I'm going to talk about some of the common ways, and then different ways we may want, depending on what's actually happening and where it's naturally going, we can also choose to steer it in different directions. So I'm going to say a little about that so we get an understanding of the landscape. Then I want to do the same on the insight side. We talk about insight. Some of you have a good sense of what we mean. For others, really, I talk to people sometimes, and well, what, is it? what is this insight I keep hearing about, even though we're doing vipassana? We've translated it as insight meditation. So I'm going to also spend some time on some of the different ways that insight's understood and practiced and experienced. And then finally, I want to come back and bring those together into uh, the particular way that we are offering here is what does it mean to, which is not the only way you can do it, but to bring them together in which they're both uh, strengthened. And, and so that's, that's what we will do this evening. And first, I want to start with uh, this was an interview from Jack Corn with Jack Cornfield. Uh, I'm the interviewer here. And um, just a couple of things he said to set the overall context, because I thought it was just important. Uh, so he was asked, I asked him what his thoughts were about the, the huge range of views about what's right or skillful or why samadhi concentration. And here's what he said. So now I'm, I'm on the concentration aspect for the talk tonight. He says, he says, well, first there's a question. Does right samadhi mean focusing on deep concentration the way Uba Kin or Pawak Saidao advise? Or is focusing on the natural concentration of mindfulness as Ajahn Chah and Utejaniya teach the best way? Of course, the answer to both is yes. What is true about Buddhist practices is that the Buddhist teachings are a great mandala of skillful means. In the early 1970s, I collected teachings from 12 of the most highly regarded meditation masters in Thailand and Burma who were teaching variations of mindfulness or insight or Vipassana practice. And this became Jack's first book, Living Buddhist Masters, which uh, now is out. Uh, that, so that's the version that came out in the 70s. Um, 
I don't know if any of them are alive, maybe one or two anymore, but it's now uh, Living Dharma, I think, is, the, is that right? Living Dharma, if you want. It's really a worthwhile book. Um, and I think it was Jack's first book. And he said, here's what Jack says. In many cases, so these are all regarded as true, whatever it means to really be ma- masters in this tradition. Here's what he says about them. In many cases, they did not agree with one another on the best way to practice. Sometimes the styles were diametrically opposed to one another. In laying out living Buddhist masters, I deliberately, deliberately contrasted the teachings so that one great master who emphasized meditation on the body as the best way to attain enlightenment was next to another enlightened master who said the only way to get liberated is to meditate on the mind. I did this so people would understand that there are a number of different skillful means, it's not just one, to cultivate the factors of enlightenment and come to liberation. Any practice that cultivates mindfulness and wise effort and investigation and joy and concentration and calm and equanimity and compassion will bring one to liberation. And there are many, many ways to do that. So I appreciate him and and I very much resonate and I hope, hope you hear that from from Bob and from me here. Um, and it's perfectly fine if teachers come in and have a very specific practice. It's like, here's where you, you, you got to do breath and nothing else, for example. And here's where you pay attention to the breath in your body. And here's how it's going to unfold. Or you do some other kind of practice. Like, I, I'm very respectful of that because it's, it, it's a very clear system. And if it's a match for you, it can be extremely powerful, all of these systems. And if it's not a match, sometimes we end up in a struggle because that's just not the best for us. And then there might be another way that wasn't so good for that person, but boy, it really opens things for us. And so that kind of attitude um, of, of honoring, respecting the, the range of skillful means is what I want to point, for you, point to. And then just a couple of other things from Jack here. Um, And then I said, of course there are those who'll say that's well and good, but there really is a right way that we do need to understand that other paths might be good in certain ways, but they might actually not be leading to what the Buddha was talking about. And Jack's answer was, that's the conservative position. But if, in fact, if you go back to the old countries of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, you can't even... You can't get the Theravada masters themselves to agree. I have heard so many masters say, I teach the true way, right from the suttas, from the original. This is the real way the Buddha's taught. I've heard a whole bunch of masters say that, and yet they contradicted one another when they said it. So I don't buy it. That's called ignorance. The real freedom is what Ajahn Chah understood. The real freedom is the freedom of letting go. It's not the freedom of clinging to what one believes is historically true, because what is historically true is this mandala, and it's not one way. So I just wanted to offer that as a frame as we, as we begin tonight. I just think it's so, such an important perspective that, that I believe. And again, other people may have a disagreement with that. I say that because... Here, I'm about to present a particular way. One facet 
of, yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what did you call? Yeah. <laughs> to tell you the truth. No, I wasn't actually going to say it's the right way. But what, uh, um, what I was going to say is, for a long time, I spoke in the way I'm speaking here, which is very, very respectful and inclusive. But in my heart, really, <laughs> mindfulness of breathing was really the way. And I, here's where you should pay attention. And, and that's, I really did think that. And it took a lot of years to come to a place through direct experience and if any of you either are or end up in the Dharma teacher role, one of the gifts about that that you see for yourself is how different we all are. And how, we're going to talk in a, just a bit about how, just the concentration piece, the, the ways, the range of ways and experiences associated with it and how varied it is for everyone who are going deep and the kind of practices that everyone resonates with. And you really come to see that at some point you just got to give it up and let go of your view because it really is not just one way and one size fits all. And none of them are better and worse than any of the others. So anyway, enough on that. So as many of you know, concentration and insight are often, especially in our tradition, in our scene, taught as separate paths of meditation practice. And certainly you can, you can practice that way. It's, we know, many of us know, that's a powerful, good, fine way to practice. And in that understanding, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, mindfulness is equated with insight and concentration can be considered then a separate path of practice or a separate style of practice related to insight, important and supportive, but actually a, a different path with its own practices and goals. And that's one understanding. I'm going to flesh that out a little bit, just a bit. Matter of fact, we have retreats called concentration retreats. That tells you right away it's something different. If you go to Spirit Rock, I've taught that retreat a few times. You're, you know, Normally you're on a, I don't know what they call a regular retreat or an insight retreat or just a retreat. Or, now you're on a concentration retreat. They're telling you we're doing something different. So that's, that's just part of our culture. We won't get into historically why, but it's very clear reasons of what, where the t- this particular style of practice came out of a particular Burmese understanding, and it became our whole scene. And we see the power of it. But we don't have to separate them. It's fine to do practices called insight and then turn to other practices called concentration to inform the insight. But there is also a whole understanding and way to practice in which we take both the concentration just as far as you would in the traditional concentration understanding, all the insights, but they actually come together. So we may or may not be interested in doing that, but the possibility um, is there for us. You know... In, tr- in truth, regardless of how we're, in what way we are consciously meditating, you cannot actually really separate out concentration and insight. They're two different things. They're not the same. But if you think you're just focusing on con- developing concentration and you think you're on a concentration retreat, you're doing this kind of practice, you must bring all the 
power and the support of mindfulness and awareness and wisdom and insight to bear, to know how to work skillfully with all the experiences come. The mindfulness and the insight's coming right in there anyway. And conversely, if you're focusing just on uh, mindfulness or insight or you're doing some of the many styles of practice that just tend to not emphasize the concentration side, First of all, just by doing that, it brings a steadying of the mind. And also, you know, we see that even for that, we want to be less distracted, right? Okay, so let me focus a little now on this concentration. By the way, uh, you know, some teachers also will kind of steer you or shy you away from concentration because they might say, and you know, I understand their concern, oh, you're going to get attached or, and you're not doing insight and everything. The Buddha was not one of them. So let me give you a couple of quotes. This is the sales pitch part of the talk. <laughs> so this is a quote of the Buddha from uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya. I'm going to get it pretty close. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of it. He says, there are five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dhamma. The true Dharma. Hey, this is a big deal. We should listen to this. What are the five things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dharma? People dwell without reverence and deference towards the teacher, towards the Dhamma, towards the Sangha community, towards the training, And the fifth thing that leads to the decay and disappearance of the true dharma is dwelling without reverence and deference towards samadhi. That's a pretty strong statement. Just give you one more. If that didn't capture your interest. This is also the Buddha. Um, I don't have the, the reference right here in the suttas, but I can get it for you if you want. Without the peace, not the like the, 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 the not the, the peace of, but the peace of concentration to a high degree, without attaining to calm, without winning one pointedness, which I'll describe later. So that's a lot of concentration. It's not possible that that could, can abide in emancipation of the mind or emancipation through insight. That's a pretty strong statement too. There's a bunch more like that. It's hard to avoid how much the Buddha emphasized concentration. The potential, the, the, what that supports us then to say, okay, this is worth cultivating. But the potential trap there is because I've taken these out of, you know, there's so much more in the, in the suttas also to inform that is the potential trap is then we fall into, I got to get. You don't got to get anything. We talked about the other night that idea of, we're on a path of, that heads somewhere, but we want to also work with a sense of not trying to get anything, just working with our present, you know, opening up to what's happening in the present moment, but then practice in ways that do lead in certain ways. If we can keep that idea, we, we won't suffer. I remember when I was, um, I, when the Force Refuge first opened, I think it's been almost 10 years ago, I, I did a, a year long there when it first opened. And... Um, you know, I had had states of jhana before, 
I haven't defined jhana. This is the first time the word's coming in. I may or may not use that word much more tonight, but let's just say they're some of the deepest stages of concentration. And we'll say some things that are about that later. And so I knew better. I'd been already at that time, let's see, 10 years ago. I was meditating for like more than 30 years at the time. I had already been teaching for more than 10 years. I knew better, but I fell in a trap. And I showed up on that retreat, and I had it all planned out. This is going to be great. Let's see, in the past on retreat, I've fallen into jhana. It took me about four weeks, so I'm going to be here for a year. Okay, four weeks I'm in jhana. After that, you know, all the insights are going to be opening. Now, eventually, everything that comes in its time. I was there for the first few months, no jhana. So I was interviewing with Joseph, and he was so kind, you know, how he can be. And, and I said... Um, Joseph, you know, and, and I was suffering. And so Joseph, in his wisdom, said, you know, I'm not getting, and he said, well, you know, of course, the deeper stages of, of the practice and the Dharma, the deeper understanding comes not from attaining any kind of meditative state, but from the non-clean to whatever is happening. And I said something back to him like, well, yes, Joseph, of course that's true, but in order for me to really understand that deeply, I got to get. <laughs> and then I proceeded to suffer for, you know. So watch out for I got to get. You know, it's a trap. Since we're all going to keep the proper view and sensibility, I don't have to worry about you anymore. So now I'm going to talk about like jhana, like as if getting, even though we're not really care if we get anything, right? Okay. Um, so first I want to say, um, I actually don't like the word concentration, the term, uh, as a translation for samadhi. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a fine word, but it carries a lot of baggage and has a lot of connotations and people are using it. One of the reasons there's a lot of controversy around the place of samadhi is everybody's using the word concentration in different ways. And they're not clearly explaining to each other, like, well, when I'm saying it, this is exactly what I mean. And then the other person say, okay, here's what I mean. The word samadhi, if you really go to the etymology of the word, the root meaning, it, it means undistracted. Now, there might be a lot of controversy and disagreement about the role of concentration and insight. But if we put in the proper meaning, there's no Nobody says, nobody's disagreeing about taking undistractedness as far as we can. Nobody's saying, be distracted. No Buddhist teachers say that. So if we get the right meaning, all of a sudden, these controversies kind of melt away, first of all. And so without creating a struggle, why not take undistractedness as far and deep as we can? Practice with it naturally brings more clarity and steadiness of mind. Well, there are two main ways that this undistractedness can unfold if we took it far enough. You don't have to remember anything that that we say. Sometimes you just kind of get a vague general sense from a Dharma talk. But I do want to recommend that what I'm about to say is something, this distinction in these two types of samadhi that I'm going to name is something I would recommend that you get clear in your mind. So if you were to continue meditating... And 
whatever the practice is. So I'll just say breath. You can substitute whatever you want. And I keep bringing my mind back to that one thing, that one object. I'm training the mind. And it may not feel like it now, but what's happening is it's strengthening. I like the image Bob used about if you're at the gym, you said something about like you lift the weights and then repetition and then a muscle will build, right? Well, the same thing happens. It's strengthening the, it's all conditioned states, but it's strengthening those conditioned patterns of the mind to be able to stay more, stay more. If you kept doing that enough, you could eventually, if you took it far enough, now this is quite far, what I'm about to describe, but you can actually take it this far. And for many of us, it may not go as far as I'm about to say, but you'll you'll head in that direction. You could get so good, your ability to concentrate on one thing could be so well-developed that you could really just stay on one thing and you would you'd be so focused on one thing you would stop noticing other experiences around you. And if you took it far enough, there's a term that's used called one-pointed. And so you can see what the meaning of that term is. It's like you're keeping, you're able to really, the mind, stay on one point or one thing, right? So if you're experiencing light, there's only light or bliss. I'll say more about some of the experiences that come in a minute. Just on the breath just on a point, just on stillness itself, for example. And if you took it far enough, you, you wouldn't even, you would actually be, become disconnected from the experience of your body because you, you'd be so good at concentrating on one thing, you would not even notice other experiences. We call this one-pointedness, and another way I refer to it, I call it exclusive concentration because the mind ultimately is able to stay exclusively on one point. Or another way to think about it is it excludes awareness of anything else. You get the idea? Yeah? Let me pause. Normally we don't do this, but anyone not clear, you may not have experienced it, but intellectually you understand what I'm saying? Nobody's saying no? Okay. So that exclu- I'm going to call that one-pointedness, or I'll call it exclusive concentration. You can see, if you developed that kind of concentration, how, by necessity, concentration would have to be a different practice from insight meditation. Because, as we'll discuss in a little while, insight requires changing experience because we start to perceive or see or understand more deeply into the true nature of our minds and bodies and all phenomena. We see that they're impermanent. We see an unsatisfactory, a dukkha quality. We see the selflessness. A lot, a lot of the ways the insights arise. That's ultimately in the service of a liberated mind. It's not ultimately about the insights, but that's what they're aiming towards. So we need to have connection with changing experience. So if you were to uh, have that, that one-pointed exclusive awareness, what's happened for you is the flow of changing experience has been lost for you until you kind of lift out of that level of concentration. You're still pretty concentrated, but you come back to a level where you can reconnect and feel your body, and and then you can turn your mind now to these other kind of practices called insight meditation, right? That makes sense if you're practicing in that way. There's another way that, and this is an important distinction, there's another way that samadhi can unfold 
either naturally on its own if you didn't do anything, or we can steer it in this other direction. And rather than being one-pointed, I'm going to translate it, I'm going to call it unification of mind, just to make a distinction. Or rather than call it exclusive, I'm going to call it inclusive samadhi. And here's the difference. It's, it's, and here's a mistake people sometimes make. This second type is equally deep. It is equally as strong and deep as the exclusive samadhi. The only, this, the mind has come to utter, let me pause for a moment. I'm using the term mind, and I'm not going for a laugh here. I might get one, but I, um, um, I just want to say I, I don't know what the mind is. So I'm using it consciously in a loose way, but there's an experience. So I just want to say, I'm, 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 you know, in case you're, you're like, what's the mind? But there's an experience of the mind coming to stillness. It stops. That happens in both of these samadhis. But in this second kind, rather than it being stopped on a point, the mind comes to the same level of stillness, but along with it, we haven't shut down the experience of changing flow of experience. The mind itself comes to a stop, not the changing flow of experience. So there's an awareness. With, so if you haven't experienced it, you might be going, well, what's that like? But this is where we can aim if we want. It's really different. And there, we're still connected with the body. With, now, at that point, there's a whole other thing we could say, the experience of the body can get pretty thin, it can kind of feel like the other kind of samadhi, you know, because it turns into energy and dissolving. A lot of insights come right out of that samadhi. You don't have to pull out. We're turning the mind into both images work, either a Hubble telescope or an electron microscope. I, I like either image. That's the power, probably in both cases. I actually think some insight does come in the exclusive one-pointed concentration. I really think it does. But in the classic text, that's not how it's talked about. That's just me. The second kind, very much, the insights can be there because we haven't disconnected from changing experience. And so that, that whole power of this jhana states, if you will, just that level of stillness and clarity is right there. So you get the distinction between exclusive and inclusive samadhi? So, one of the things we'll do is we'll look to see if you're interested in um, pursuing that on the concentration side. We watch to see how is it naturally, which way is it heading. I'm not getting into a lot of those details in this talk. That's more for interviews and, and practice instructions. But we actually look to see, and it's very easy to see which way we're naturally heading. And also, we can steer it in either other direction, and it's not hard to do. It's straightforward once we see how it's going for each person. So you have some choices on which way you want to want to head. And, and again, it's not one's right or wrong. So let me just read you a quote. This is a, some of you will know this very well known quote from Ajahn Chah. And you can see what kind of samadhi he's talking about here. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool. In other words, all kinds of experiences will come and go. And you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. 
he's talking about the second kind of inclusive unification of mind, samadhi. So we can come to utter stillness. We just don't add in shutting down other sense. You know, if you think of it in terms of, I don't know much about brain science. I've read a few books, but so some of you know this may not be accurate, but I think it makes the point. Whatever parts of the brain are involved in the function of the mind coming to one-pointedness or stillness, complete undistractedness, and heightened clarity, that's the same in both samadhis. And the only thing that happens in that one-pointed exclusive is, along with that, other brain centers shut down that are involved in visual experience, body sensation experience, hearing and all of that. Whereas in the unification of mind, we only bring to quiescence the part that brings the stillness and the clarity, but all the other centers can continue their functioning. I think that gives a, again, it may not actually work that way, but you get the idea. Okay. So when when I come back in a few moments to talk about insight, you can see that if we develop the right kind of samadhi, you never have to worry about being too concentrated, right? Because all you're doing is getting more and more and more clear and steady, and we can take that as far as we want. And the only danger is the suffering we create with the I gotta get. And if we can somehow, and I know it's hard, I really know it's hard, find the way to rest at peace, and this is really the ultimate goal, right? In the midst of this changing flow of causes and conditions and experiences, then we won't suffer and we can, we can go for it. Right. Just a couple more things on concentration. Along with the steadying of the mind, so some of you know this very well, and for those of you who are new, I'm mostly talking to you, at some point, you'll begin to have certain experiences of deepening in the meditation. You'll start to, and it can, it's a huge range of the kind of experience. I'll name some of the common types of experiences that can come along with the deepening concentration. Calm. Peace, stillness, happiness, joy, expansiveness, uh, spaciousness. Um, Some people start to feel kind of a blissfulness that can either be in the body or maybe not clear where it's located. It might be more mental. For some people, they have a feeling of energy really moving strongly in the body, Some people see lights. Not everyone, some do. Some people start to hear sounds. Lots and lots of different experiences that accompany the deepening of their part of the experience of samadhi. It varies tremendously. For some people, um, the practice, it can be quite dramatic when these things start to happen. And lots of energies or the lights or the bliss and... And for other people, it's very smoothed out, and actually the equanimity is more prominent, even when we go into these jhana states and everything, and, it, and it's not such an emphasis on the, you know, the, the, the drama, dramatic, you know, thunder and lightning stuff. So it's a big range. Sometimes people think, oh, I want to get, what's this bliss I keep hearing about? And, and, they, and, they, and they're judging their concentration 
by all these kind of experiences I just named. But if we can separate out, it's a little artificial, but separate out all those kind of experiences that can come with what's really the important and the essence, which is the undistractedness, the clarity, and the steadiness of mind itself, then we don't have to get so tied up about, oh, am I, oh, boy, that person's, you know, they're sitting on their cushion and their body's shaking up and down. I want some of that. <laughs> or whatever it is you think would be, you know, and, and that's not that great, by the way. <laughs> you know, that, that has a whole set of, then it can be worked with like anything, but it's got its, it's got its joys and it's got its issues like everything too. So, so that's a distinction that, that will serve you to keep in mind, separate the clarity and the... Okay. So again, I'm going to move over and say a few things about insight, but that's the main points, two ways the samadhi can unfold, and knowing that if we want to have a... An, uh, a unified kind of one-path practice, we can start to aim towards the second kind of unification of mind that's inclusive. Um, and then the insights can happen right in there. Okay. And then last thing, actually. So the way we're practicing, in case you haven't noticed, is we're encouraging you to give pretty strong preference to the breath. Not just say be with the breath, but it's actually, you know, really give it you know, it's, I, I personally say quite strong emphasis. And yet, of course, we need to know when to let it go and work with other things. So we're not clinging to it. We're not saying only breath, always breath. You couldn't do that anyway. But it's by giving it that extra emphasis we have that strong object, and it's very much in service of the unfolding of the concentration. Okay. Let me say a little bit about, this will be a little shorter than the piece I just did on, on the concentration. I think this will be more familiar to many of you. I want to name four main ways or aspects of the practice in life in which I see insight developing. And then we can see how does concentration fit in with all these different four. There may be other ways to... to separated out, but I chose these four. The first is, the first are the insights that come naturally out of the deep samadhi, as I've been talking, describing, when we have the right kind of samadhi. That you don't have to do a special practice looking for insights. Sometimes coming out of this concentration, it's just an awareness that happens. So for example, I've had you know this kind of samadhi, and then I've had experiences with, without me doing anything to make it happen. You know how probably for most, I'll just, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but if I were to ask probably most people say, well, pick some experience, like just sound in the room or your breath or just anything. Say, can you feel the experience? Can you have, yes, yes, I can, I'm having the experience. Can you notice that it's changing? And then people might, for example, could say, well, I mostly notice the experience itself, but if I make a point, yes, I can be aware that it's changing. Well, as an example of how some of these deep insights can happen, uh, for example, I've had where on its own, it flipped completely around where if someone were to ask me, what's popping out to my awareness was 
the, the fact of change, 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 change. And then if someone were to ask me, I mean, I was in formal meditation, so I probably wasn't having a conversation, but you know, if I made a point, I could say, well, yeah, if I make a point of it, I can notice the experience too. But it's, it's just turned completely upside down. Well, that just seems, well, what's that like? But when it's happening, it, it's just so obvious. That would be an example of, of a deep, we call it an insight into impermanence and change right there. And th- so these kind of things, and these can happen on, on the classic three characteristics and many other ways insights can come. So I won't say more about that, but it just to, that it can just happen as a fruit, as a result of having a, a, a well and properly concentrated mind just can come. That's one. There's another way that insights can come with, from the place of a very concentrated mind also. And that is, even though we're talking about the mind coming to stillness and it's not moving, and again, this gets into me not knowing what the mind is, there can still be another little part that can kind of, it's subtler, but can still kind of look and direct. And It's not necessarily words, I'm going to say it in words. It might be, oh, what's this? Or, oh, let me look at that. You know, and can kind of incline the mind in different ways. There's a little part that's moving, even though in a bigger sense, it's not moving. We may, cha- we may choose to actually do, in the more of the traditional sense, insight practices while in the deep samadhi. Why? Because we just, I don't know, that was our sense to do it for whatever reason. And so then we may actually consciously incline, not waiting for the insights to come, but look, actually turn the mind towards seeing into impermanence and into dukkha and into not-self and and those kind of things. And, And because the mind's so clear, it's a Hubble telescope or an electron microscope, that's pretty, you know, we can get at that in a deeper way more easily. So there's both aspects that come out of these deep samadhi states just on its own, or we can still do insight kind of practices as we choose. That's two ways that insights can come. I want to name two others that are, I think, so what I just named is what I think people tend often tend to think of as the real deep insights that come out of these deep meditative states. I think the next two I'm going to name are at least equally as important. At least. So the third way insights can come is when you're in formal meditation and you can't concentrate. And it's all the things that Bob talked about last night. And you're sitting here being present with yourself and your mind's agitated, there's some kind of suffering going on. Emotional things, psychological, spiritual angst. Your mind won't stop. The body hurts. Just, Or maybe none of that's going on, uh, but you're just not getting what you want. You know, you wanted to go right and it's going left and it's not a big deal, but you just wanted to go right. And instead of going left, you're making a struggle, whatever. This is... And it's what I said earlier. Those are the times when we often think, oh, my meditation, you say, how's your meditation? Ah, wasn't a good meditation. You know, and it's kind of a cliche, we say, well, there's no such thing as a bad meditation. You know, these cliches, they become cliches because they're actually truths and they just get repeated so much. 
I have to tell you, a big shift came in my practice. This is, I don't know when, but after years of practice, when not just paying lip service, but I got just as interested in my suffering, I mean, really, as I was in my bliss. Changed everything. I'm not saying that has remained as an unbroken uh, state of attitude all the time, but the more we can hold that, these places are important. We say we want to become, we want to, what's the Four Noble Truths? We understand dukkha. And actually, I don't also, you know, there's all these words I'm sitting here telling you that, you know, here I am. I don't like the word concentration. Well, I don't like the word suffering either for dukkha. So there, I said it. But we're kind of stuck with it because everyone says suffering. It doesn't actually mean suffering. It includes suffering. Personally, they didn't ask me, but if they did, uh, I would have uh, used unreliable or unsatisfactory. Because even getting what you want is dukkha. And it, and it creates suffering if we cling to it. Why? Well, we all know. I mean, intellectually we know. We don't live our lives as if it's true, but we know intellectually because nothing's going to last. Right? I mean, even if you could set your life up perfectly, you know, and of course, who can do that? It, it, at the very least, what's gonna, where's it all going to end? Right? We're going to die in the end, right? So we all know this. You know, um, things change. And so um, nothing went wrong. It's so important to get this. That doesn't mean that if you're sitting here in meditation, you don't use skillful means to optimize conditions for you not out of aversion to what's happening, but in service of what will help you be more settled, more clear. No question about that. Sometimes, you know, the answer is not always be with it, be with it, be with it. You know, I knew someone who was uh, in robes with Upandita in Burma for about a year, and she, she ended up leaving, and she told me... Uh, she was having some major meltdown about her mother and her whole life. And I mean, she, it was, she was just falling apart. You know, Upandita, and he was just saying, well, did you note it? And, you know, uh, you know if, if it's like, you know, I'm going to jump off a cliff here, Upandita. You know, the answer is not, you know, did you note it? It's like, okay, we need to bring the intensity down so you can manage it. So that's part of the skillful means also. Knowing how to, so I'm not saying we don't, make adjustments and try to fix things sometimes or change things if it's done out of wisdom. You know, when is it time to stretch your leg out and give your knee a break? If we do it every time and, you know, we, we never learn, learn to work with pain. But we can take it too far and sometimes out of kindness and compassion, stretch our knee out, bring the intensity back down where we can work with it, give ourselves a break. That's the art of knowing, you know, and sometimes we're going to be too out of balance. Okay. We suffered more than we needed to because really we should have moved the leg. Or we moved it too soon. And yes, we did miss an opportunity to, be, to work with suffering and, and come to know it. Okay, it happens. You'll get more opportunities. You know, and you'll miss some and you'll, you'll, you'll get some. So if we can hold that attitude, and I mentioned this uh, the other night about, uh, on the opening night, about the experimental attitude. That's so important if we can remember during these times. And the trick is not falling into the trance. 
you know, we're just caught in it, we're lost in it, we're habitually, automatically, unconsciously reactive. And when we wake up out of the trance, you know, we're no longer enchanted. You know, the term to be disenchanted sometimes can have kind of a, a negative connotation. It's like let down. But if you actually think what it is to be enchanted, you know, if you ever read any of the old fairy tales, you know, the whatever, the sorcerer casts a spell and you're enchanted. You're, you, you don't see reality clearly, right? You're, you're just in some distorted view of things, you're under a spell. And then, you know, they have a happy ending and, you know, the spell gets broken and you're back to reality. You're no longer enchanted. That's to be disenchanted. So disenchantment is we, we wake up out of the spell and we see more clearly what's actually going on, not our opinions about it, not our reactive. This is where we're aiming. You know, we, we do the best we can, of course. You just do the best you can. You can't always get it right. And then we don't want to miss the opportunity that's there. So it's actually very, we don't go seeking it. Again, making yourself comfortable, relax. You don't need to seek it out. Maybe sometime, I suppose. But you don't need to seek it out. It will find you. Isn't that true? Suffering's going to find you. When it does, we don't want to miss the opportunity for growth that it offers. So if we can hold it with that attitude... Um, um, it can become a real... Anyway, it just shifts our whole relationship there. Okay. So samadhi uh, insights can come up on their own. In deep concentration, we can actually do insight kind of practice, if you will. There's the times in formal meditation when, you know, it's not what we call the bad sits or the difficult challenging sits, how important that piece is too for insights learning about how we create suffering and what's the way to let go of our suffering in the midst of this. The fourth way that I think is equally important and I think often really gets shortchanged, this, it's possible this is the most important, daily life. Whatever daily life looks like for you, you'll have some level of concentration, whatever your daily life level of samadhi is. And that varies for people a lot. It's, for most people, it's different than retreat level samadhi. But that's not true for everyone. Certainly over time, I found the, the, the distinction between daily life and retreat um, has gotten, um, it's not so distinct anymore. And also some people uh, have a natural ability to concentrate or practice a lot in daily life. For many of us, that's not so easy to do. However it is for you in daily life, that's your daily life consciousness, your daily life level of mindfulness and concentration. You may not be as clear and present all the time, but there's a lot of opportunities to see what's going on in our minds that we don't get on retreat because when we're in deep samadhi, even though we have this clarity, one of the features of strong concentration is it temporarily suppresses the hindrances. When we're really deep in it, they don't arise, and we're just in these beautiful states of the mind. So there are conditioned patterns that don't have an opportunity to arise. And if we want to shift our conditioning and ultimately free ourselves from conditioned patterns, well, how do we get at our conditioning? How do you see your conditioning, right? You, you can't. You can't. Where is it? You can only get to it indirectly 
when we come up against some experience and then we get to see how the mind responds. There's our conditioning illuminated. And so we all know that, again, we're not going looking for trouble. So when you go back to whatever your situation is, your work, some people are live by themselves, some are living with other people, some are in relationships, some not, some have jobs, some don't. Whatever your daily life looks like, and you interact with that, whether it's people or situations or whatever, that's another place for great opportunities. And I'm not going to say much more about it. We're coming to the end here. But it's so, I mean, we could just spend a whole, really that's a lifetime of inquiry And people can sometimes think it's a little bit less than because it's not the deep meditation. And no question about it, like I'm really big on formal meditation and retreats. And it's, you know, listen, I'm I'm real I I think this samadhi and jhana is a huge big deal. Huge. But I also mean like you don't 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 gotta get anything. Right? Daily life, as a matter of fact, if I had to choose, and I wouldn't have always said this, between only daily life or only retreats, um, uh, at this point in my life, no question about it, slam dunk, daily life. Because I don't, and I don't have that support of samadhi, but I also don't have the things that are covered over in intent. And I'll just give you one example, and there's so many examples. So I haven't, an aspiration, and this is a real aspiration, to live in a way so that my heart never closes off to any living being, period. That's a real aspiration. I take it quite seriously. Now, of course, I have plenty of opportunities to see where work needs to be done, right? And so for all of us, it's, it's, you know, it's a work in progress, but I take it very seriously. And it was a real shift to see when, uh, I think mostly I'm a pretty equanimous guy, I'm a pretty nice guy, and I think kind of how you see me here, this is kind of how I am, uh, except when I'm not. <laughs> Ask my wife about that. You think we never have an argument? Ever? You know? I mean, it's not too, we're mostly fine, it's good, but my point is, I'm not immune from irritability or anything. Well, uh, I'm going to come back to that. We only have about five minutes left. Um, I want to take a, a side, you know, if you're going down a river, and then maybe there's a little side canyon, and you've got to just stop there and go see what's there. Something just happened. And I, I, it feels important to me, and I'll just take two minutes and I'll come back and do the last three minutes on what I was saying. I just use an example of I just use an example of my wife. Perfectly fine thing to do. Do it often. No need to give it a second thought. Except. One day, um, using an example of giving a Dharma talk, and a gay man came up to me, and he was sharing with me. wasn't criticizing me, didn't think anything was wrong with my example, but he just wanted to share with me how when I just used an example that I so casually just mentioned my wife and 
don't have to give it a second thought. He noticed for himself how unsafe it would be if he were up here that he couldn't talk about like my husband or whatever term he uses for his partner as a gay man. I was so appreciative. I just said, thank you for telling me that. I, I know how our society treats gays. Totally know that, of course. But when I'm giving my Dharma talk, completely unconscious of it. Now, did I have to have that awareness? No. Didn't have to. But if you care about the suffering of yourself and others, I want to know. So I just said that. Now, I'm not tying myself in a knot about it. I don't want to get all like, oh my God, everything I say now, is this creating suffering for someone? Or that? No. You want to be spacious, relaxed. Just go about your business. For me, I want to know. It may or may not influence or change what I say. So I just, because of that, the gift that that man gave me, it put that sensibility in my mind so I don't have to think about it. And so I just happened to unconsciously, I was saying, well, just ask my wife, and then all of a sudden the awareness was there. Oh, you know, it may or may not have been anything for anyone, or you know what, someone may have had some suffering around that. And I care about people's suffering. While I'm on the subject, there could be people here who've just lost a spouse or who aren't in relationships, don't have a husband or wife and wish they did have one, or have one and wish they could get away from one, or whatever it is. <laughs> and there's some other kind of suffering, not even about being gay, that could come up around that. Again, I don't want to make my, you could drive yourself crazy overthinking it. No, I don't want to overthink it. But you know what? I care about the suffering of others. I want to know. So I'm kind of, this is, <laughs> This is a whole Dharma talk here, it's really, but uh, uh, I just felt like I wanted to name that. It just sort of, something rang in me uh, to, just then about that, and I felt, I don't know, I just wanted to name that. And just last bit, um, if we are interested in our suffering and the suffering of others, just as a general statement, and I was thinking about this because Bob and I are going to teach a day long together in about a month at Spirit Rock on the West Coast on the topic of non-harming. And it's the same thing. There's places where, we, where harm can be caused. We're not doing anything wrong. So that's not my point at all. But there might be ways, I mean, there might be things where I do want to change my behavior, other things where I'm just not attuned to the suffering of others, and I want to know. And I may want to then actually go into action. So I want to unmask things that have been hidden. Right? So you don't have to do what I do, which is every time I turn on the water, I'm aware that there's a billion people on the planet who don't have ready access to safe, they might have to walk five miles to a well that's not reliable, to safe drinking water. When I'm here, you turn on the tap, every time water's going to come out, as long as you want, and it's clean and you'll never get sick. You know, so there's another example. Again, you know, you're, some of you are thinking, oh, Shankman's going to drive me crazy. Now it's like, <laughs> but I'm just saying, as we start to bring in more awareness about our suffering and the suffering of others, it's like, you'll have to see for yourself what you want to know. Anyway, uh, 
uh, boy, I'm feeling a real pull to give you another one-hour Dharma talk, but out of compassion, uh, <laughs> of course I won't, wouldn't do that. But uh, 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 All right, so now we're back in the main river channel here. Thank you for letting me say that uh, and for your kind attention. So to end then, I think, I hope you've already gotten a sense of this idea of how we can now practice in a way that brings concentration and insight together in one path of practice. Even though we'll find sometimes we're naturally leaning on the concentration side and sometimes we're naturally leaning on the insight side, it feels like that's the emphasis. As I said on opening night, um, we actually don't have to choose. You can choose, fine. But we can let our, stay attuned to our inner knowing, our inner teacher, which I think is such an important skill to develop, to know our inner truth, and let it inform what's needed. So we don't have to choose. Experience will tell you what's needed. So here's what I would offer to you to close. As you meditate, the amount of time when the body's at ease and your mind's clear and steady, in other words, the time where it's going well, or we'll say you're concentrated, that will increase. During those times, if you would like, I invite you to just stay with that. You're on the concentration side. Stay with your breath or whatever you're doing and just keep that going and deepening. And I realize I'm not giving you a lot of details on how it unfolds and what to do, but just stay with your breath. We'll talk to you individually about you know, what to do when it unfolds. And just keep, keep it. That's it. End of story. That's all you need to know. And just let that concentration go as far and deep as you want, and then we'll steer it towards inclusive. And then, on its own, without you doing anything to make it happen, all the times when that's not what's happening for you and it's everything Bob was talking about, experience has dished up something different for you and so we need to know how to work with this in the moment. We let experience inform us so we stay attuned. We be as honest with ourselves as we can. You can't see your own blind spots. Don't worry about that. And then you turn to, and it's just a question, what's needed now? Do I let go of the breath and just feel this grief or look into impermanence or whatever insight practices? Do I let the breath come in with me? Uh, whatever. And you just, and then when that changes and then you're back on the concentration side, you go with that. And so we learn to move, or I think of it like surfing seamlessly back and forth, just with the ever-changing flow of experience and just responding in the most appropriate and skillful way. And it's all really come together as one path. So um, thank you so much for your kind attention. Um, I very pre- much appreciate it. Um, let's just sit quietly just for a few moments and then we'll ring a bell uh, to end.
So please enjoy your walking or how, what, however you choose to practice or spend your time. Do we have any announcement or anything? Okay. So thank you all. <laughs>